The word of God from Psalm 15, the description of the godly. Lord, who can dwell in your tent? Who can live on your holy mountain? The one who lives blamelessly, practices righteousness, and acknowledges the truth in his heart. Who does not slander with his tongue? Who does not harm his friend or discredit his neighbor? Who despises the one rejected by the Lord, but honors those who fear the Lord? Who keeps his word whatever the cost? And who does not lend his silver at interest or take a bribe against the innocent? The one who does these things will never be shaken. The word of God for the people of God. Well, good morning. My name is Isaiah. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm going to encourage you now to take a copy of the scriptures. There is one under the seat in front of you. You can turn to page 477 in that copy to turn to Psalm 15. On this Memorial Day weekend, this is a weekend that many people consider to be the beginning of summer. So as a church, yeah, I I see some people excited about that. That is cause to celebrate. Uh, As we enter the summer as a church, we're going to pick up where we left off last summer in what we hope to be really an annual rhythm for us, where we take our summers to spend time in the Psalms, calling it our Summer in the Psalms series. If you were not here last year for our series, I'd encourage you to go back to our YouTube channel and watch at least the first two sermons, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. That will give you kind of an orientation to the book of Psalms. And this morning, we find ourselves in the 15th of these poems in Scripture. Most of the Psalms are very emotional. Something that strikes me about Psalm 15 is it's very unemotional. It's very factual. As we begin to look at Psalm 15, let's ask God for his help on our time together. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Spirit, as we open your word, we ask these things. What we know not, teach us. What we have not, provide for us. And what we are not, make us. For the sake of your glory and our good, we pray. Amen. This past Wednesday, Elizabeth and I worship in the life of Israel. So he's actually addressing it not just to God, but to those who are worshiping around him. And the question is this. If you want to spend a lifetime or even a moment in the presence of the most glorious and perfect being in the universe, namely God himself, wherever he chooses to live, what is required? Now, he asks it a bit more poetically than I just did. Look at verse 1. Lord, who can dwell in your tent? Who can live on your holy mountain? Eugene Peterson paraphrases it this way. God, who gets invited to dinner at your place? How do we get on your guest list? The poet speaks of the tent of the Lord, the dwelling place of God, and the holy mountain or hill, depending on your translation. 
And we could take the time this morning to trace those themes throughout the scriptures from Mount Sinai, where God met Israel in a flaming fire after he redeemed them from Egypt. We could go to his instructions to Israel to build a sacred residence that they then constructed that was called the tabernacle. It was really a giant tent. We could go to the detailed ceremonies found in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, ceremonies for external cleansing and for ritual purification and sacrifice, all requirements for approaching God in the way God desires. We could go to Mount Zion, where both the first and the second temples would stand in Jerusalem. Who is welcomed in God's presence was a significant concern for Old Testament Israel. And it ought to be a concern for us as well. Both Psalm 15 and Psalm 24 are thought to be entrance liturgies to the temple. Kind of like our call and response to worship that we had at the beginning of our service. As someone would approach the temple or perhaps as priests would approach to serve, another priest might ask, Lord, who may be a guest in your home? And then that individual or those people would respond using verses 2 through 5. The psalm answers the question, to whom will God extend the hospitality of his home? It's an important question, and it's one we would do well to ask and find the answer to this morning. But before we do that, is it safe to assume that that question, that all mankind is even interested in the answer to that question? Or is that question in and of itself kind of irrelevant in our day and age? Who really cares who God is going to welcome into his presence? Well, I actually believe the question is very relevant, and it's safe to assume all men are interested in this question, even those who would deny God's existence or God's relevance. Because every man and woman longs to be connected to something greater than ourselves, to experience some connection to the transcendent, to whatever higher power they might believe in. We've been created with this longing. And so some people answer this longing through psychotropic trips on drugs. Others through meditation or spiritualism, astrology, new age mysticism. But you could just go to the scientific community as well and others seek to answer that longing by immersing themselves in the metaverse, or by pursuing artificial intelligence and the hope of some pure higher power greater than the sum of mankind's intellect. For others, that longing for a connection with the transcendent might be hoping alien life is found in outer space. For you, 
your concept of being connected to the transcendent might look, it might look like you needing to be connected online constantly. It's the closest thing you can imagine to something all-powerful and all-present and all-knowing. But let's be honest. For many people in this room, you simply want to know, do you have a welcome from God to be where He's at? So, if you want to stay with God where He dwells, what must you do? That's our first point this morning. What you must do. Verse 2 answers that question generally and comprehensively. And then verses 3 through 5 follows up that question with illustrations to answer it. So verse 2 begins with an answer to this question, who's going to dwell with God? And it's quite comprehensive. The one who lives blamelessly. The one who practices righteousness. The one who acknowledges the truth in his heart. So, what's required to dwell with God? Well, quite simply, integrity in all areas. Faithful action in all circumstances. And truthfulness even in the most secret of places. Integrity, faithfulness, truthfulness. And these are the general requirements for those to whom God will extend the hospitality of his special, sacred home. And we all nod in agreement, right? We've sat in sermons like this before. We give the appropriate religious head nod, right? Ah, yes, mmm, integrity, amen. Faithfulness, mmm, amen. Truthfulness, yes, amen. Then he goes a bit deeper. He starts meddling. Thankfully, it's poetic meddling, so it feels a little less painful, but it's meddling nonetheless. Verse 3, whoever does not slander with his tongue, whoever does not harm his friend, whoever does not discredit his neighbor. So the broad generalizations of verse 2 come to a point and is, are illustrated by the poet in the power of the tongue. Slander. Harming friends through what we say. Gossip. These are out of bounds for the one who would dwell with God. So verse 4 continues. The one who despises the one rejected by the Lord, but honors the one who fears the Lord. The one who keeps his word, whatever the cost. So the one who would be welcomed by God must despise the despicable. Some translations say a vile person. He's describing someone who's contemptible, someone whom God has rejected based on that person's disobedience and rebellion and unfaithfulness. And if we would be welcomed by God, then our perspective must agree with God's evaluation 
of individuals like that. And now I get that this seems harsh to our ears. But remember, this psalm is in the context of the covenant community of Israel. This is not a reference to outsiders. This is someone on the inside of the covenant community of Israel who's experienced the blessing of God, but who is morally bankrupt, vile, contemptible. The one whom God welcomes agrees with God on God's evaluation of such people who've willingly rejected him. The end of verse 4 says, the one who keeps his word whatever the cost. And this may be describing someone who keeps, who, who makes a vow and then keeps that vow even if it hurts. Or it may be that the vow is actually a vow to bring about calamity or justice upon someone who deserves it. Let's recognize it's certainly wrong to cause calamity and spread false accusations against those who are innocent, as verse 3 says, but it's just as wrong to fail to bring justice against those who deserve it. But in both cases, either of those cases, what is needed? Perfect moral clarity. Perfect moral discernment. Finally, verse 4 continues the meddling. Describing a wholesome relationship to money. I told you that the poet was going to meddle. And here he takes aim at our wallets, our credit cards, our paychecks, our cryptocurrency, our loans, our investments, our tax reporting. Why? Well, because in these areas there's a unique temptation to not be truthful or to lack integrity. To seek to wrong other people or institutions or governments. A temptation to suspend moral standards when it comes to financial dealings. And specifically in the poet's context, but no less in our context, we can seek to leverage power through how we use our money. And we can end up oppressing others with how we use it as well. So where does this psalmist leave us? Eugene Peterson's paraphrase here is quite compelling. Walk straight, act right, tell the truth, don't hurt your neighbor, don't hurt your friend, don't blame your neighbor, despise the despicable, keep your word even when it costs you, make an honest living, never take a bribe. Now, in this psalm, in the original language, as each line continues, the number of syllables and stresses, it's a poem, each stressed syllable increases as the poem goes on. So as you get to the end, 
before our eyes and in our ears, there's this growing weight of an answer. Who's going to dwell with God? Well, it's this person, and it's someone like this, and someone like this, and someone like this, until we get to the end and we're bowed down under this burden. And the psalm ends with this. Do these things, and you'll never be shaken. But we could also translate it this way. You must do these things in a never-faltering way. It's kind of like the children's storybooks or the Amazon show. You know the one I'm talking about? What happens if you give a mouse a cookie or give a moose a muffin? The answer just doesn't seem to end. It just goes on and on and on. Some of you wrote that down. You're going to have to go look up what I'm talking about. So who can live up to Psalm 15? I can't. And I think if you're being honest, you know you can't either. But this psalm isn't in isolation. It's not like this is an anomaly in Scripture. There are multiple places just in the Old Testament where God's expectations are summarized in a list of moral oughts. Things we should do. How about Micah 6.8 that Nestor referenced last week? Mankind, he's told you each what is good and what, is, it is, what it is the Lord requires of you to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly. Isaiah 66.2, this is the Lord's declaration, I will look favorably on this kind of person, one who is humble, submissive in spirit, and trembles at my word. Jeremiah 22.3, this is what the Lord says, administer justice, righteousness, Rescue the victim of robbery from his oppressor. Don't exploit or brutalize the resident alien, the fatherless, fatherless or the widow. Don't shed innocent blood in this place. Zechariah 8. These are the things you must do. Speak truth to one another. Make true and sound decisions within your city gates. Do not plot evil in your hearts against your neighbor. And do not love perjury, for I hate all of this. This is the Lord's declaration. The thing is, we often get really confused on this question. How do we know if we're measuring up on what we're supposed to be? What scale, what measuring metric is appropriate for human beings? For discerning who is in and who is out. Most of the world's religions are based on trying to answer that question. And if we get the answer wrong, if we don't know what the proper measure is, then we have no hope of ourselves being on the right side of the scale, do we? We have to know what the right measure is. Daniel Nairi is a Persian immigrant who fled to the U.S. with his mom and sister when he was just a young child. He wrote a memoir written from the perspective of a small boy, even though he is an adult 
His memoir is entitled, Everything Sad is Untrue. In one place, after telling a story, he begins to draw out a lesson in the words of a young boy, and here's what he says. The lesson here is that people have scales in their heads, and they measure other people for their value. And ugly refugee boys are on the, near the bottom. And pretty blonde girls are at the top. This is not a happy lesson. But you either get the truth or you get good news. You don't often get both. As one author notes, it's no light matter to stand in the presence of the Holy God. Psalm 15 reinforces this demand for holiness on the part of the one who had approached God's dwelling place. So friends, this is what you must do, what you must be to be welcomed into God's house, to be a dinner guest at his table. And so number two, Psalm 15 lists precisely, lists precisely what you cannot do. What you need to be welcomed into God's presence is absolute perfection. This is precisely what we must do, what we do not have, and what we cannot work for. And to put it in the terms of what it's like for me to get ready for a trip, it's not like if we work hard enough and long enough we can get all the to-dos done to go on the trip. All the food prepared and the car all packed and make it to our destination. It's not like that at all. We can't even begin to start the list. We don't have the strength or the ability to even begin. So there's no hope of a successful trip. Being welcomed by God into his presence, even for a moment, much less for a lifetime, is beyond us. It's like Nairi said, isn't it? You don't often get the truth and good news at the same time. So here it is. Here's the truth. Absolute integrity, faithfulness, truthfulness. We don't even come close. It doesn't matter what scales you have in your head for measuring others. In God's scales, we all fall short. That is the message of Psalm 15. That's the truth. And the truth doesn't always come with good news. really quiet in here. I wonder what you were feeling when I sat down. Surprise? Confusion? Weight? 
guilt, anger, hopelessness. I think the response I fear the most in this room is a lack of response. No surprise. For some of you, if I had ended just then when I sat down, that wouldn't have surprised you at all because your whole life you have been told and you have understood that that is the story of Christianity. That's the message of the Bible. I used to read passages like this, and in my longing to please God, I'd be overwhelmed with the hopelessness of it all. I cannot be this person. So am I forever on the outside looking in with my window pressed against the glass of God's house, looking at the party going on on the inside going, I want to be in there. How do I get in there? But I can't be this person. And many of you grew up thinking the same thing. This is the message of Christianity. Rules we can't keep. Oh, and judgment from God for the rules we can't keep. But friends, that is law. It's not gospel. And the law is true. And the law is good. But the law is not good news. I would have been misrepresenting God in the Bible if I sat down at that point and did not continue this message because it's only part of the truth. Remember what Nairi said? You either get the truth or you get the good news, but you don't often get both. In the gospel, you get both truth and good news. It is the exception that proves the rule. God, in his great love for us, designed a way for us to be warmly welcomed into his presence presence, a way for him to warmly extend the hospitality of his house to us who will never match up to Psalm 15. So what is the answer to the great entrance liturgy of Psalm 15? It's not verses 2 through 5. There's actually a much shorter answer. I taught high school Bible for a couple of years, and then some Bible classes at the university level. And it made me chuckle that in both contexts, I would routinely have students give me Sunday school answers for difficult questions. You know the answers I'm talking about? There's like five answers that if you give in a traditional Sunday school context, no teacher in their right mind is going to say, that's wrong. Sometimes when someone asks a religious question, we expect a handful of answers. But in this case, the Sunday school answer is the right one. You see, Jesus is the answer 
to the entrance liturgy question of Psalm 15. To whom will God extend the hospitality of his home? Jesus. And all who are united to him by faith. Why? Well, because of number three, what Jesus has done. Jesus perfectly fulfilled each of these requirements in his earthly life. Only he perfectly kept his integrity in every situation. Only he did what was righteous in every potential situation. Only he was perfectly truthful, even in the most secret of places. Only he demonstrated this in the most seemingly insignificant ways through his speech and his relationship to material wealth. This is what Jesus has done for us on our behalf, which we could never do in an absolute sense. And so what does he tell his followers, those who are united to him by faith? In my Father's house are many rooms, and I go to prepare a place for you. So, is that it? Can we just close our Bibles, say amen? We've heard a gospel-centered message. Let's call it a day. Well, not so fast. Number four, what we now can do. In light of what Jesus has done, what can we do now? Well, simply trust Jesus truly and follow Jesus imperfectly. First, trust Jesus truly. Psalm 15 is not the same old, same old of law, law, law. It is law and it is truth, but it's truth with good news. Jesus has stood in your place for you if you will but receive him. What you have left undone and what you have done all against God's law, Jesus comes and he does what you didn't do and he doesn't do what you've done in your place. If you will but receive him by faith. It really is as simple as trusting Jesus. Repenting of your sin and rebellion against the law of God. That good law that requires you to be faithful and righteous. A person of integrity and truthful. A law that requires you to be holy for your flourishing and for the flourishing of those around you. And then to embrace the good news that Jesus' integrity, his righteousness, his faithfulness, his truthfulness is yours. Not in theory. In actuality. You can't earn it. Just embrace it. Trust Jesus truly. Second, follow Jesus imperfectly. Jesus' absolute innocence and perfection enables us to live innocent and righteous lives because he gives us his spirit. Now, not perfectly innocent, not perfectly righteous, but imperfectly, relatively. And so how should we seek to structure our lives? What should guide our conduct? 
passages like Psalm 15. These same guidelines, not to gain entrance with God or to gain salvation, but because Jesus has already achieved that for us. We've already been welcomed into God's house, so how do we live in God's house? Well, we dwell there as one who's been granted the privilege to be there through the merit of another. So we order our lives in such a way as to dignify and beautify what we've received. So this week, when you're convicted of your lack of integrity and your lack of faithfulness and your lack of truthfulness in the million and one ways that you will be, what do you do? Do you despair? No! You're in God's house, Christian! Repent and turn to Jesus. Because it was never your righteousness, your truthfulness, your integrity that got you in the house in the first place. It was his. See, Christian, you and I have been freed to follow God imperfectly. This is what the make, makes the gospel message entirely unique. Tim Keller would say it this way. Religion says, if I obey, then God will love and accept me. The gospel says, God loves and accepts me. Therefore, I want to obey. And so this psalm speaks a gospel-shaped hope to us. Jesus has answered the entrance liturgy for God's house, his presence on our behalf. And so we are now free to become what God desires and to embody what God requires. So Christian, are you a person of integrity? Do you live a life of faithfulness and justice? Do you pursue truthfulness? And perhaps you're sitting here and you have believed the cultural narrative that says the world would be better off without Christianity and without Christians. So let me ask you seriously, can you imagine the improvement to your neighborhood, your family, to Chattanooga, to our country, if everyone walked in integrity in their dealings. If everyone did only what was righteous. If everyone only spoke and shared on social media what was true. If everyone never slandered or gossiped. If no one ever used financial resources for the undermining of others and only for the flourishing of others. Is Christianity really the great ill of the world? Or in Christianity, do we find the hope of the world? The gospel of Jesus Christ that frees us to be this sort of person. So Psalm 15 tells us what we must do. It tells us what we can't do. 
It tells us what Jesus has done. And it tells us what we now can do. So trust Jesus truly. Follow Jesus imperfectly. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you that in your kindness you did not merely give us truth, but you gave us good news as well. So Father, would you give us grace this week to repent quickly to run to Jesus regularly, to pursue following Jesus imperfectly. And for the one or two or five here that are still skeptical of the claims of Jesus in Christianity, Father, would you open their eyes by your Spirit to see the goodness and the beauty and the truth found within the message of the gospel. For it's in your Son's name that we pray. Amen.